mentioned last week, Carol and I have been worshiping here for about a year now. I forgot to mention last week that I have a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. So I have a science background, an engineering background, and I understand some of the arguments that the evolutionists teach. And I actually used to believe in the long ages. But I heard a young creationist say, but the young creationists have a lot of good arguments too. And I wanted to understand what those arguments were because I was trying to reconcile the six days of creation. And that led me to the Christian bookstore, and I found a book, The Battle for the Beginning by John MacArthur. And he pointed in that book to answers in Genesis. And those are some resources I've pointed out in, the, in the, uh, your outline today. I've given you the outline from last week. The first two pages are the outline from last week, and the next two pages are for this week, so you have them all together, as well as the handout of the biblical timeline that we went through last week. As I uh, showed you last week, we can look at the, the, the real debate is about interpretation of facts. We all have the same facts. We have the same dinosaur bones, but we look at that fact, and creationists say they were created maybe 6,000 years ago, and evolutionists say they were created millions of years ago. We look at the Grand Canyon. We have the fact of the Grand Canyon before us. We have the same facts, but the interpretation of those facts, a creationist says they were created probably during the Great Flood, recent creation of the Grand Canyon, where an evolutionist say, well, we see the slow running water, so it's been slow running water forever. The mockers who say things have been said have, have been the same since the beginning of time, which we just read in Second Peter, or third, yeah, Second Peter chapter 3. And they say it's millions of years ago the Grand Canyon was formed. It's the interpretation of the facts. That's the battle. It's the interpretation of the facts. Uh, this is the outline talking about theistic evolution, what the biblical worldview versus the evolutionary worldview. We basically spent most of the time last week on the biblical worldview. It's kind of like, uh, you know, before you delve into the other teachings, what is the foundation of our truth, the scripture? What does the scripture say? And so last week I tried to give you that biblical foundation. It's just like uh, people that try to counterfeit money. How do you know if money is counterfeit or not? You have to know what the original said to compare it to. You have to understand it. And once you know what's in the original, and then you see something that's counterfeit, it becomes obvious to you real quickly because you know what the original says. And we have the original scripture here. So the rest of the day we'll talk about evolution, uh, worldview, cosmological universe, how the uh, cosmological evolution, which is the, uh, the universe, geological evolution, talking about the earth and how it came to be, and the biological evolution about how life evolved. As I mentioned last week, we're in a spiritual war. This is a war against spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a world that is spiritually blind. We have to remember that, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, and they cannot see the light of the gospel. And that's why we're still here, to be that bearer, that light, and share that gospel with them. As we read in Second Peter God takes no delight in the perishing of the wicked. He's being patient, wishing for all to come to repentance. Also reminded from teaching of the Bible that there's false teachers. And Peter reminds us that false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow. They will exploit you with false words. Of the 110 colleges, Christian colleges in the United States, only six teach the, the, the literal uh, 
six literal days of creation. We have to be careful. And I mentioned last week, it's a personal thing for me because I had a cousin that was in Jonestown. So I can see the deadly uh, uh, consequences of following false teachers. She went down to Jonestown. She was my age. She went down there with her husband, three children, and her in-laws, and they all drank the Kool-Aid. Inherit the wind. I made a, somewhat of a big deal about this week. I want to make it even a more bigger deal because I studied it more during the week. Inherit the Wind was a movie made in 1960 originally, and it's based on a true trial that happened in 1925, considered the real trial of the century because this had life consequences. It was a debate about evolution of man. Tennessee had a law in the books that said you cannot teach evolution of man in the schools, and ACLU wanted to test that law and break that barrier down. It was already acceptable in the schools and in a lot of mainline denominations to teach evolution, but not the evolution of man. I put this verse up here to be, always be prepared. And James Wayne Bryant, who is a 30-time presidential candidate, could not defend his faith when he was on the witness stand. He could not defend the six days of creation. He could not answer the question, where did Cain get his wife? It also mocks Christianity. After 1960 in this movie, it did not portray the trial accurately. A lot of people think it does, but it doesn't. It portrayed Christians in a very negative sense. It portrayed Southerners in a very uh, negative sense. And so today, a lot of evolutionists like to continue to promote this movie and this play. It's taught in our school still today. It could be an English class looking at its great literature. It can be in social studies to look at the social implications. It can be taught in community, uh, in community theater, drama classes and theaters, and put on in school plays because, oh, it's a great play. Let's have our kids do that. So be careful if your child comes home from school and says, they got a part in the play, inherit the wind. Go to Answers in Genesis and learn more about it so you can train your children as to what really happened at the trial. And I just want one quote here from uh, Clarence Darrell himself. He was the one um, defending the teacher that was accused of teaching evolution. And that's him uh, doing the interrogation in that particular video clip picture. I don't know as I was ever in a community in my life where my religious ideas differed as widely from the great mass as I have found them since I have been in Tennessee. Yet I came here a perfect stranger and I can say that I have said before that I have not found upon anybody's part any citizen here in this town or outside the slightest discourtesy. I have been treated better, kindlier, and more hospitably, more hospitably than I fancy would have been in, if this case was held in the north. He was very complimentary of the Christians' attitudes, and they were bearing the light and trying to, to show the light to the unbelievers. And that's the way Christianity should be. This movie continues to move on in, in Hollywood. Uh, this is a Broadway play with Brian Dennehy and Christopher Plummer in, in 2007, uh, a TV movie made with Kirk Douglas in 1988, Jack Lemmon and George C. Scott redid the movie from 1960, a 1999 version, and just, uh, you know, Kevin Spacey did the play in uh, London, the London's version of Broadway. It's still going on. It's still in our schools today, so be co cognizant of that. Something that comes out in the movie that's not in the actual trial, some of it is, but not everything, they talk, and I wanted you prepared in this in case this comes up in any of your discussions with your friends. Uh, they talk about the date of creation, 4004 B.C. Well, James Usher's timeline, which we talked about, 
he rationalized it was October 23rd, 2004. And mockingly in the movie, he said, well, what time? James William Bryan said it was 9 a.m., but James Usher actually says it's 6 p.m., but he has rationale for that. One, he uses the Julian calendar. If you convert that date to our calendar, it's actually September 21st, the change from summer to autumn. Remember, day one, day two, evening and morning, evening and morning. So he rationalized that maybe the seasons, uh, the first season was a dark season, autumn, and then and then winter, and then we have our light seasons. There was morning, there was evening, and there was morning. So he rationalized that. And he also rationalized 6 p.m. because that's when the Jewish calendar started, their time of day started. Evening, it started in the evening, so he rationalized 6 p.m. But that's, we can't be dogmatic about that because it's not in the Bible. It's just a rationalization based on Jewish tradition and when it might have happened. Okay, the signature scripture of this is, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you would believe if I tell you of heavenly things? This is the evolutionist attack to get you to doubt the Bible. If we can teach you that long ages are for real and you can't take the six days of Genesis literally, then why believe the rest of the Bible? God's a liar. Why believe the rest of the Bible? They're trying to falsify the Bible, and this is the, their, their main point of attack. So what we learned last week is a biblical timeline. How do we know that the creation was in 4004 B.C.? That's the handout that you have in front of you. Uh, what we know from Jeremiah is the fall of Jerusalem happened in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And we know from secular history that was in 586 B.C. Now we can work our timeline backwards with those timelines towards the top of the graph that takes us back to 4004 B.C. There's the 490 years that Paul talks about, the sojourn of Abraham. Three, uh, I think it was uh, 420 years. So you can see all those timelines, and the genealogies take us right back to 4004 B.C. It's not hard. Only five scriptures can take us all the way back from 586 B.C. How do we know when Christ was born? Well, we know from Luke that in the 15th year of Tiberius Sirius, Jesus was baptized when he was about 30 years old. So we know that Tiberius Caesar's, when his rule was, his 15th year would be 26 A.D. You go back 30 years, you're at 4 B.C. You go forward three and a half years for his ministry, and you have his death in 30 A.D. So we have the biblical timeline, creation 4004 B.C., the, the, the fall of Adam and Eve, you know, the corruption in the world it was introduced by sin, 4004 B.C. It happened very closely to creation. Catastrophe, the, the flood in 2348 B.C., and the Tower of Babel, confusion in the languages and the dispersion of man across the earth, 2242 B.C. Then we have the Exodus and the Ten Commandments from Moses in 1491 B.C. that point us to uh, the need for a Savior because we realize we can't keep the law by ourselves. That points us to Christ in 4 B.C., the cross in 30 A.D., and then the consummation. That's our biblical worldview. That kind of gives us an outline uh, to kind of hang our hat on, if you will. Did God mean in six days? I believe that God wrote what he meant, and he meant what he wrote. And he wrote, in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth in the fourth commandment, and keep the seventh day holy, Exodus twenty eleven. And he repeated the Ten Commandments, in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And we're reminded that these were written on stones, a tablet, written by the very finger of God. This is the part of the Bible that God actually wrote with his own finger. Corruption of the universe. 
sin, what happened with sin. Therefore, just as through one man sinned into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We've had every man has since has sinned because we've all sinned. And as a result of sin, death entered the world. So before Genesis 6, we said everything was very good. If evolutionists want to say that we got here by the survival of the fittest and we had a lot of death and dying and a struggle for the survival, uh, that says the world was very good if we had a lot of death. The Bible teaches we didn't have death until sin, after creation. Romans 5.12, I'm sorry, Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's not just us that are cursed. The whole universe is cursed as a result of this sin. And Paul is bringing that out in Romans, that the whole creation groans. So not only do we have sin in our lives, we see now the world the way it is with volcanoes and tornadoes, uh, avalanches, tsunamis, falling stars, etc. Catastrophe. We taught that, that it was a global flood last week. The Bible is very emphatic. All the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. That's saying it's a global flood. And everyone that was not on the ark died that had the breath of life in them. All the flesh, every swarming thing, all mankind, all those who were on the dry land, all in whose nostrils of the breath of life, the spirit of life died. And you look at 1,656 years of how long man lived before the flood of populating the earth. It's estimated that billions of people were judged. And they were warned for 120 years as Noah preached to come to repentance. And they did not. And God, ju God judged the world because of the wickedness of their hearts uh, was so intense. The confusion of the languages, when they got off the, got off the ark, they, only 120 years after the flood, we find out that they're not obeying God anymore and they want to build this tower. They don't want to be dispersed across the earth like God commanded them when they got off the, uh, the ark. The three sons of Noah, they were separated by their languages, according to their languages, according to their families, into all the nations that we see in the world today. So this gives us the origin of languages in the world. So how important is Genesis? It's the foundational knowledge that builds up the whole gospel. The gospel is our foundational knowledge. Christ and creation, sin and death gives us our foundational knowledge. The power of the gospel is Christ crucified and him being raised from the dead. And the hope of the gospel is a consummation of all things. And as the psalmist said, if the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's what the evolution is trying to do. They're trying to wipe out our foundation in what we believe and try to get this Bible thrown out as something that's authentic and true. So that's a recap of last week. Thousands, not billions of years. Let's talk about uh, the universe. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is loving kindness toward those who fear him. Psalm 103.11. The creation of the universe happened on day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for the days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights and the greater light to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. He made the stars also. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So this is when the rest of the universe was made. And it's so understated uh, and also the stars. 
I mean, because the stars are so spectacular. And it's just like almost like a side note. So where do we get our year? How long it takes the earth to go around the sun? Where do we get our month? How long it takes the moon to go around the earth? I'm going to skip down to the day. Where do we get our day? How long it takes for this earth to spin on its axis? But where do we get our week? Never stop and think about it. It has no relationship to, the, uh, to astronomy. The week comes from the Bible. God created in seven, six days and a day of rest, seven days to give us a model, an example of our life pattern. God could have created it in any length of time or any shortness of time he wanted. He could have done it instantly if he wanted to. But he took the time to do it in seven days to give us a, a pattern for our life. God's purpose for the universe. For the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Psalm 19.1 As we learned in, in Romans a few uh, weeks ago from Steve, we are without excuse because we can see the evidence of creation. If we see a building, we know there was a builder. If we see a painter, we know there was a painter. If we see a creation, there had to be a creator. So, man in 1862 declared man's ultimate scientific ideas. These are all the things that exist in the world and nothing else. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Everything in the universe can be accounted by these five elements. This was done by Herbert Spencer, a British philosopher. His book was called Principles of Biology. He is the person that coined the term survival of the fittest. So that tells you where his interpretations of the facts would come from. But he should have read the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, the heavens, space, the earth, matter. When the Bible talks about things of science, it always gets it right. It's not a science book, but the Bible does touch on scientific ideas and principles and always gets it right. And I'll point those out as we go along. This is man's evolutionary timeline that the Big Bangs, the world exploded, uh, the universe exploded from nothing into some massive explosion called the Big Bang. And somehow out of that, the stars were formed, then the sun, the earth, the water, and then life, somehow out of non-life, from fish to amphibians to reptiles, birds, mammals, apes, and man. So basic, basically their formula for creation is nothing times chance times time equals everything. That's the formula. Nothing, it came out of nothing, the Big Bang. Chance, what's chance? It's nothing also. In time, and that's why they have to keep stretching the time because maybe we'll figure it out over time, equals everything. What is science? This is what they teach in their science book. So down there at the bottom, you see the source of this biology book from the a Florida edition of a, of a biology book. Science is the observability, the testability, the repeatability, and the falsifiability uh, of the scientific method. That's true science. So when I talk about science, that's also my definition of science. I can observe it. I can test it. I can repeat the test to see if I get the same results. And I can maybe run a test, and I said, if it gives me this result, then it would falsify the other test. That's basically what the evolutionists are doing. They're trying to false the Bible with a, a test. Are the six days really true? And they're trying to show you, no, it's not true. I can tell you that it was millions of years. They're trying to falsify the Bible. So I'm going to falsify their evolutionary theories here in a minute. Then the book goes on and says it's not necessary to distinguish between historical and operational science. Historical science is going back in time. 
There are some questions science cannot answer. That's very true. They can't go back in time. Evolution is not observed. They are, their evolution was not observed, but we can still understand how it happened. No, they can't. You cannot go back in time. Just like we talked about last week, you cannot prove with science when you were born. You have the testimony of the hospital with their birth certificate. You have the testimony of your parents or other people that were there when you were born. When you were born. That's how you know history. How do you know George Washington was the first president of the United States? Science can't prove that. It's revelation from historians and whether you believe those historians. We have the history of the Bible, of the world in our Bible, from somebody that was there. And he's told us what that history is. Science rules out the supernatural. They believe in naturalism, a belief denying that an event or an object has supernatural significance, specifically the doctrine that scientific laws are adequate to account for all phenomena. And they believe in materialism, a belief claiming that physical matter is the only or fundamentally reality and that all organisms, processes, and phenomena can be explained as manifestations or interactions of matter. So we have the war of worldviews, if you will. The biblical worldview, the world the view that we have is if conclusions contradict the truth revealed in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, the conclusions are rejected. Naturalistic worldview, any conclusions that don't have a naturalistic explanation is rejected. So it's the interpretation of the facts, it's where we're coming from and how you interpret the facts that we have today. So how do they date things? It's called uniformitarianism. And to put it simply, the key to the past is the present. So the key to the past is the present. The present is the Grand Canyon has slow running water. So I'm going to assume it had slow running water forever. And it took millions of years for that slow running water to carve out the Grand Canyon. That's uniformitarianism. An assumption that the same natural laws and processes that we operate in today in the universe have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe. So... Dating methods that they have, radiometric dating, carbon dating, distant stars, the fossil record, rock layers, geological columns, ice cores, and tree rings are all examples of uniformitarianism uh, dating. So if I had this hourglass up here and I asked you, when did the sand start flowing, how could science do that for us? This is basically analogous to radiometric dating. You might look at that sand and figure out how much sand is in the top and how much sand is in the bottom. You might try to figure out how fast the sand is flowing and say, oh, if it's f flowing this fast and I got that much sand in the bottom, it took X number of hours to get the sand in there. If it's an hourglass and that's half, it's a half an hour for that sand to get in there. But how do you know when I turn the sand hourglass over? Well, I flipped it over now and asked the same question. If you weren't there when, I, when it started flowing, you don't know the starting point. So I'm going to give you another example. For argument's sake, let's say there's an alien spaceship. Just for argument's sake, there's no aliens out there. They're circling the Earth, and they want to study Earth's teenagers. One set of scientists go to one side of the Earth, the other go to the other side of the Earth. They go back after a year to report back to the mothership. And say, so we studied the teenagers on Earth, and... For one year, we watched them, and they grew one inch in that year. And their average height is 65 inches, so they're 65 years old. The other 
people come uh, from the other side of the earth go back to the mothership and they give their report. Well, we studied their weight for one year and they gain two pounds during the year and they weigh on an average of 130 pounds. They're 65 years old. Done deal. Science has proven it 65 years old. They forget the revelation of the parents that says, no, they're only 13 years old. And don't question their own conclusions from the revelation. They don't know the starting point wasn't zero. They don't know that the rate of growth was the same over all so-called 65 years. And they don't know if maybe there was necessarily contamination. What if one of those places went and studied a bunch of kids that never saw sunlight and their growth was stunted and they could have come back with a different height? So they don't know if there was any contamination in their results. So looking at radiometric dating, it was invented by Ernest Rutherford in 1905. He won the Nobel Prize for this in 1908 in chemistry. He is considered the father of nuclear physics. He's the guy that split the atom in 1917, and he discovered the proton. Just like Charles Darwin, he is buried in Westminster Abbey. You use radiometric dating to date rocks, basically granite and lava. And the way you date it is looking at the the radioactivity inside. So we're most familiar with uranium, uranium being radioactive, and it decays into lead. If I start out with a piece of uranium, how long does it take for half of it to turn to lead? That's called the half-life. And that's what we see here, that uranium to lead takes 4.47 billion years for a chunk of uranium to turn half of it to lead. Take another 4.47 billion years, now I only have one-fourth of the original uranium, and I got three-fourths lead, and it just keeps going that way. Other dating methods, potassium argon, uh, this is the most popular one used today, 1.25 billion years. Rubidium stronium takes 48.4 billion years for a half-life. But to do that dating, they have to assume they know what the starting point was. When that rock was born, if you will, and when it was belched out of the volcano, how much uranium did it have when it started? They weren't there. They don't know. Was it 100% uranium, 50% uranium, 25% uranium? They don't know if there was any contamination that could have changed over time. And they don't know if the rate of decay was 4.7 billion years forever. Did it ever change? Was there accelerated uh, decay? There's evidence that there was, but they ignore that evidence. There's also evidence that uh, if there's still helium in the granite, that can't have been around for billions of years. Helium's the second lightest element, and it would have leached out of the granite and the lava, but we still find helium, even in granite that they say is 2 billion years old. There's helium in there. If there's helium in there, it can't be that old. Radiometric uh, dating examples here. What if I can give a lab that does radiometric dating a date of a known piece of lava? We can do that from Mount St. Helens. We know it erupted in 1986. We can take that a lot. Lava, it was born in 1986. If I take it and send it to the labs around the world that do radiometric dating, what dates do I get back from those labs? You can see there the ranges, a half a million years to 2.8 million years. I think they were a little off. So why should I trust them about their dating method if they can't date a rock of known age? 
Mount Naguru, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, in New Zealand, had three eruptions. Send those same pieces to the dating labs, and you can see the ranges there from 270,000 years to 3.5 million years old. Okay, they have multiple dating methods. Let's use them all on the same piece of rock and see if they all come back with the same date. Beartooth Mountain here in the west, estimated at 2.8 billion years, and you can see the range the labs came back with, 1.5 billion years to 2.8 billion years old. They couldn't get the same answer from four different dating methods. Same thing with the Grand Canyon. They couldn't get the same dates with the four different... So how reliable are those dating methods? I think we just falsified that their dating methods don't hold up. Radiocarbon. Carbon-14, you might know it as. This was a big thing. Uh, Discovered in 1947, I can be introduced in the schools as I was going through school about radiocarbon dating. It disproved the Bible. Uh, I heard that all the time growing up. Uh, Dr. Willard Libby uh, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for this in 1960. He was the leader of the Manhattan Project in World War II, which brought us the atomic bomb. So, supposedly... Uh, you know, a well-known, well-respected scientist in the secular world. Carbon-14 is uh, used to date once living organisms. So plants in uh, life, uh, human beings, animals, etc. We all breathe in carbon-14. It comes from the radiation in the sky. The nitrogen atoms are being bombarded by the X-rays and the gamma rays, and it creates radioactive carbon called carbon-14, and we inhale that. And it's assumed that, I'm going to drop down one line, that the starting point is that for every one atom of carbon-14 in our body, we have one trillion atoms of carbon-12. So it's very minute. It's a very small amount of carbon-14 that we ingest. The half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years old. We can only measure up to 10 half-lives with our mass spectrometers. That would give us 57,300 years. So if we measure anything that still has carbon-14 in it, it can't be more than 57,000 years old. So can we assume that we had the same atmosphere always to get the ratio of 57,000 years old? The magnetic field has changed. Genesis flood may have changed the dynamics of the world and the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. And today, we still find carbon-14 in the coal. We find carbon-14 in diamonds that they say are billions of years old. We find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. So you could use almost their same dating method against them that says they can't be billions or millions of years old if it has carbon-14 in them. But at the same time, we know carbon-14 is not a reliable dating method either because they weren't there at the beginning, they don't know the starting point, and they don't know if the rate had changed over time. Are there other dating methods? Yes, but they don't choose to use them because they don't give them the long dates. They use the radiometric dating because it gives them the long dates. That's why they use radiometric dating. So Dr. Henry Morris has documented 67 other uniformitarian dating methods. 23 of them give you a date of less than 10,000 years, and 23 of them give you a date of greater than 500 or less than 500 million years. Examples that could have been used, the decay of the Earth's magnetic field, we can measure that. If we look at the decay rate and date that on a uniformitarian basis, it would say the Earth's only been around 10,000 years. 
If we use the influx of radiocarbon, we'd get 10,000 years. How much salt is being poured into the oceans? They measure that. And if you extrapolate that back in time, if this much salt's gone into the ocean, we have this much salt now in the ocean. It took 62 million years to get that much salt in the ocean. Or how much iron has been deposited into the ocean? You'd only get 100 years. But they don't use those dating methods. They don't like the answers. Peering into space, 13.2 billion years. This is a picture from the space, Hubble Space Telescope. That's supposed to be a picture of the sky 13.2 billion years away. I don't really doubt that. that you know, we can measure the speed of light and how far things are away. Um, but you know, I stop and think about it. You know, so, so they based on this, they say, okay, the universe is about 15 billion years old. They know they're not at the edge of the universe. All those lights in that picture are galaxies. The universe just keeps going on and on. So they, they round up to 15 billion. We're not quite to the edge yet. So they're going to launch another space telescope this year called the James Webb Space Telescope. You'll start hearing more about it as we get closer to the launch date. It's a thousand times more powerful than a Hubble Space Telescope. It's going to be an amazing telescope. It'll be interesting to see what we see. But if you take, think about it, how they got this picture, they found a hole in the Milky Way to bypass our stars to an unobstructed view to go into deep space, to look as deep as they could into space. So for months, they had the Hubble Space Telescope staring into space to get this image. And they say it's 13.2 billion years. Well, I always wonder, what happens if they turned around and pointed in the other direction? Would they get another 13.2 billion years? And then was it 26 billion years? So, I don't, it's hard to say. Okay, how far away are the stars? Science measures distance by light years, and, and there's, they say there's billions of light years, 13 billion light years. The speed of light is constant over time, maybe, probably. We only have about 100 years of measuring the speed of light. There is some suggestions that it might have been changed, but... A hundred years ago, could we ag at, you know, accurately measure the speed of light as we can today? So not 100% not sure. Time flows at the same rate in all conditions. That's false. Albert Einstein proved that with a time dilation. Basically, time slows down as you go faster, and time slows down with less gravity. Uh, so if you shoot a person into space and they come back a hundred years later, they will only be a few days old and will be 100 years older because they're not experiencing time the way we are. Clock synchronization is absolute. That's false, too. When we look at times, is it relative time or versus absolute time? You have to understand that question. Is it Eastern Standard Time or is it Pacific Standard Time that we're looking at? Uh, light does not experience the passage of time. How far away are the stars? Well, there's some problems with how big they say the universe, and uh, it's called the horizon problem. They say the universe is at a uniform temperature. It's called the cosmic microwave background radiation that they can measure, and it's at 2.9 degrees Kelvin. And for any scientists in the room, that's almost absolute zero. It's really cold in space. And uh, 14 billion years is just not enough time to have cooled down to 2.9 if it, the Big Bang started out with a lot of heat. There's also something called the red shift distribution. Red shift is looking at the light rays, and if they see the red spectrum, they know the light's moving away from us. If they see the blue spectrum, the light's moving towards us, any of these galaxies or stars that are out there. The Big Bang, it's an explosion. 
Basically, there should be no pattern to the explosion. Anything should be randomly and homogeneously distributed throughout the universe. But our galaxy does appear to be in the center of the universe. Remember, that Hubble Space Telescope could have turned around and pointed in the other direction, unless they think we're right on the edge of the universe where the Milky Way is. And I'll show here, I'll illustrate that here in just a second. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. It really is amazing. The Hubble Space Telescope makes me believe in the power of God even more. So, the Milky Way is in the center of the universe, the way we have been able to observe it from here. We see galaxies in circles around us, evenly distributed by a million light years in between the circles. This was published by William G. Tift. He's a University of Arizona professor in 1976 and has been independently verified by many scientists since then. They cannot explain this in a scientific explanation. It's called the redshift quantization. Say that fast three times. Okay, the first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy. Energy is always conserved. It cannot be created or destroyed. When we use up energy, that's what, exactly what we do. We convert it from one kind of energy to another kind of energy. Usually when we use energy, we turn it into heat that gets lost, and, and it's, it's then cooling down, and we've lost that energy. But it's still there, but we just can't, we can't harness it once it's burned up. The first law of thermodynamics was uh, discovered in 1797. And what's the Bible say about the first law of thermodynamics? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. His works were finished from the foundations of the world. The Bible confirms the first law of thermodynamics. When the Bible touches on science, it's always right. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of increasing entropy. Basically, things are falling apart. This building will fall apart someday. The pyramids are falling apart. It might take a while, but they are falling apart. Basically, the potential energy of the state will always be less than that of its initial state. And this was discovered in 1824. And what's the Bible say? All of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But the Bible says... God upholds all things by the word of his power, for by him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. This universe would fly apart if God wasn't holding it together, but we still see the laws, the second law of thermodynamics in place. So some questions you might ask yourself. How old was Adam when he was created? What came first, the chicken or the egg? I asked that question last week. The Bible teaches us the chicken came first. How old were the trees when they were created? If I cut a tree on day of creation, how many tree rings would I see in it? The tree's only a day old, but there might be tree rings in it when it was created. How long does it take to make oil? We have synthetic oil today. A lot of high-performance automobiles require synthetic oil. They don't want the contaminants that are in natural oil, so they can make pure oil and synthetic oil. It doesn't take millions of years to make oil. It doesn't take millions of years to make coal. We have synthetic coal. We have rocks. That's what our roads are made of, right? Cement. That's man-made rocks. Diamonds. Man-made diamonds. Zirconian. 
It's been around for quite a while. Industrial diamonds are all man-made diamonds. They can make them in the labs in matters of weeks. It doesn't take millions of years to make diamonds or to make fossils. We can see fossils in our lifetime being made. Flood and fossils. For God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The flood is a very important part of the Bible. And I want to illustrate that with a movie from uh, Mount St. Helens that the Answers in Genesis did. And the reason I want to use this movie is because you'll see things pointed out in this movie that you will not see in any secular movies about Mount St. Helens. They will be willingly ignorant, as we read in Romans, about the information that they see there. So they won't even tell you about it. They know it's there, and they're being willingly ignorant about it. So I'm going to see if I can get this to work.
So the flood is a big deal. It explains why the world is the way it is today, the way the earth is the way it is today. It's kind of called catastrophism, counter to the uniformitarianism argument. So was there really Noah's Ark in the flood? God told Noah how to make the ark. If you assume 18 inches per cubit, you come up with 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. That is the same aspect ratio or proportions of today's super tankers. It wasn't until the 1800s another ship was made this large. So looking at the principles that we know of today for buoyancy and staying above the water, the Bible got it right, able to withstand waves up to 90 feet, 98 feet. How many animals can fit on the ark using those dimensions? Noah said, uh, God said, build three levels in the ark. Uh, only take kinds on the ark. And we'll talk about kinds in a minute. In a minute. Estimated kinds, 2,000 to 16,000 animals. Animals did not have to be fully grown. I didn't have to take a big, big dinosaur. I could take a baby dinosaur on the ark with me. Small elephants, small giraffes, they didn't have to be full grown. Uh, if you assume five square feet, uh, well, you end up with the square feet, 33,000 square feet uh, on the ark. You assume five square feet per animal, you can get 6,750 on one level. If you stack two per level, you can have 40,000 animals on the ark. That's only 40% of the capacity of the ark. Plenty of room left over for food supply. How many kinds are there? So this is modern man's classification of the mammal. There's 29 order, 153 family, 1,249 genus, and 5,765 species. The Bible describes kinds we think, we don't know, we can't be dogmatic about that, but similar to family. Uh, you didn't have to take every kind of dog on it. You just had to take one dog, and we'll talk about the genetics of dogs and human beings in a few minutes. Uh, animals, beasts of the earth, winged birds, things that creep on the earth, all air-breathing families, about 2,000. There's plenty of room, and you didn't have to take millions of animals on the ark. How did the animals spread around the world? Birds can fly. They can fly great distances. We see birds today that migrate from one north pole to the south pole. They can carry things with them, uh, insects on their bodies that could be deposited in other places, seeds. Winds can carry insects and seeds. Animals can ride on the ice flows, ride on floating logs and debris on the ocean currents, and land migration of ice bridges between the Bering Straits of Russia and Alaska or between the Malay Peninsula to Indonesia to Australia. It all is possible to have that migration around the world. The geological column. This was how things were dated and still pretty much dated, even though we have radiometric dating. But before radiometric dating, they used the geological column, basically saying all these layers that we see in the Grand Canyon all cr were created at different times. And whatever fossils are in that layer is what they call index fossils. And if you tell me there's an index fossil in that layer and you give me a rock from that layer, I'll say it's dated based on that fossil that was found with it. They don't necessarily take the time to do the radiometric dating because that's expensive. So you have all the layers. There's about 13 layers there identified on this particular geological time scale. It gives you the impression that this geological time scale, these layers all exist in one location. 
that doesn't exist in one location anywhere on earth. We'll have some of these locations, some of these layers, if you will, in one parts of the world and other layers in other parts of the world. They don't exist on top of each other. If they did exist on top of each other, they would be miles and miles and miles deep. Can you disprove rock layers? Well, if these layers were laid down over time, how did this rock, how did this tree grow between all those layers over time? Those layers were laid down like we saw in Noah's, in the St. Helens video, all down at once, and that rock got caught in, those, in that flow of the mud flow and all the different layers. Here's other examples. This is not just a a one-time photo that somebody found. It, it happens all over the world. You can see the different layers here in a tree growing through the layer, a prehistoric fossilized tree that was fossilized at the same time. There's another one, I think, right there. And just more examples of finding these. Here you see, actually, a coal seam. This is all coal down here in layers of rock on top of the coal. And you find... A, a fossilized log penetrating all layers. This is an interesting, when you talk about ice cores and dating, uh, during World War II, these planes had to uh, make an emergency landing in Greenland and had to be left behind. Fifty years later, some of the veterans that were on those planes came back to find them. They couldn't find them. They knew the exact location they had, the, the coordinates, and they couldn't find them. One of them was an oil executive, and he brought his his technology from the oil industry using ground-penetrating radar and located them and determined they were 260 feet under the ice. The people that use ice core dating were blown away that in 50 years you could have 260 feet of ice already on top of these. They bore down there using basically heat to melt the ice, pulled out one of these fighter jets. It's a P-38 Lightning. There's only three left in the world that can fly, and this one still flies. They refurbished it, and it still flies at air shows today. Plate tectonics. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. It had to be a, basically a catastrophic event during creation. We have a watery planet, and all of a sudden, earth appears. The dry land appears. But also during the flood. The waters were standing above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established for them. The mountains rose up. The valley sank down. So, you know, we look about these layers. If the layers were laid down over millions of years, you wouldn't expect the layers to maybe look like this. If they were all laid down at a different point in time. The mountains rose up and the valleys sank down. They say this is Zion National Park. And they're saying, well, the, that, that curved part there was due to heat and pressure. From where? It was all still kind of liquid. The re from them hadn't fully formed yet and hardened yet as the mountains rose up and bent those layers that were laid down during the flood. The Ice Age. From the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Job's the oldest book of the Bible. He's talking about glaciers. The Ice Age came after the flood. The flood changed the, the, the hydrosphere of this world, changed the climate of this world, 
and created an ice age. We have one ice age, and the Bible talks about it. Flat earth in the Bible? No way. When the Bible talks about science, it always gets it right. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And in the Hebrew, we're talking about a sphere. He stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. It hangs in space on nothing. The Bible gets it right when it touches on science. Dinosaurs in the Bible. God created the great sea monsters. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan, as the psalmist says. In Isaiah, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. From where comes the viper, the flying serpent? If you look at your timeline, Isaiah was only about 700 B.C. He's talking about serpents and flying serpents. Dinosaurs in the Bible. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, how is his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly? He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. I don't know. I think he's describing a dinosaur. When, especially when you see his tail is like a cedar. That's the cedar tree of Lebanon. This is a big tail of a big dinosaur. Dinosaurs in the Bible. He sneezes, flash forth light, and the eyes are like eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, spark over a fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke go forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Fire-breathing dragons in the Bible. We have tons of legends of dragons in all worldwide cultures. I don't think it was their all their imaginations and all cultures coming up with fire-breathing dragons. And I'm not going to doubt the Bible. Same thing. Uh, oh, I lost my thought there, so it'll come back to me, though. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the national flag of Wales has a dragon on it. Just give you an example of, of, one, of the, uh, one of the legends. Oh, I was going to say... Legends of floods, too. All ancient cultures have flood legends, very similar to uh, uh, Noah's flood. They talk about only a number of people surviving on, in the whole world being flooded. Now, a lot of mythologies crept into those over time, but uh, they basically have the same elements as the creation of the flood uh, story. Uh, there's an ancient Chinese character. It's not used in today's Chinese language, but, you know, the way Chinese characters are done, they... They're pictures of, of things, and it's a picture of eight people in a boat, and that's describing the, the, the global flood in the ancient Chinese culture. So we have flood legends, and we have dragon legends, or you could say dinosaur legends. What happened to the dinosaurs? Well, they were formed on day six when he created the beasts of the world. They were cursed just like we were. Remember, the whole world was cursed. They were fallen. They were cursed with disease and death. The flood drowned everything else that was left on the earth. And we have these great fossil beds today where we can see a lot of fossils. They faded away. Apparently, they could not survive well in the new climate after the flood. They, man didn't, we didn't live 900 years uh, after the flood either. 
you know, they're reptiles. You feed them forever, they'll grow forever. So in the pre-flood conditions, they could get really big. Uh, and apparently they faded out. Maybe some of them survived in caves and weren't radiated from the cosmic radiation that we were exposed to after the flood, and those are somewhere that some of these legends come from. So maybe a few did survive after the flood. Uh, man rediscovered the dinosaurs in 1677 when he found our first uh, fossil, and we fashioned the word dinosaur in the 1841. So that's why you don't find the word dinosaur in the Bible. The King James Bible, the first English-language Bible, the close to the first uh, uh, widely uh, known uh, English-language Bible, they didn't know the word dinosaur. But count how many times the word dragon is used in the King James Bible. They knew that word. Man and dinosaurs together, that's a question that comes up. One thing we have to remember that of all the fossils we found, a very tiny, minute portion of them are fossils of vertebrae or backbones. There's only been, you know, T-Rex made famous from Jurassic Park. Only 30 of them have been found, and they've all been partial skeletons. They never find the whole skeletons. Five of them were found just recently together in uh, Montana in 2000. So possible reasons why man and dinosaurs haven't been found together. Man could swim and stay on top of the flood for a while, not get buried in the same layers of the dinosaurs. Possibility. Man could stay on top. Man may have been buried in a different layer. Uh, man may not have been fossilized. If we only have 0.01% of the fossils are vertebrae. We have not excavated all the flood deposits, so still a possibility we could still find man and dinosaurs buried together. Did dinosaurs turn into birds? This was introduced in Jurassic Park too. Uh, but what's the Bible say? Birds were created on day five. Dinosaurs were created, beasts of the earth, on day six. Evolution says it's a fact that dinosaurs evolved into birds because of their similarities. It's just superficial similarity. They both walked on two feet. You know, yeah. They say the DNA of a dinosaur is in the chickens, and they're going to recover that. Uh, Cold-blooded to warm-blooded, how did that happen? Uh, their fingers changed from 1, 2, and 3 to 2, 3, and 4. I don't know how they figured that out, but somebody did. Uh, bidirectional lungs. You know, the dinosaurs breathed in and breathed out, but I didn't know this. Birds, they breathe in, and the air goes out through their hollow bones, and that's how they can be aerodynamic and fly as much as they do and everything. Uh, how do you get from, go from scales to feathers? Dinosaurs and birds are found in the same fossil layers. I mean, in the same, uh, yeah, fossil layers. That would make them the same age if they were buried together. So how could one evolve into the other if they existed at the same time? Okay, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, movie uh, that she fought on, uh, shot on location in a, in a temple in Cambodia uh, that was built in 1200 A.D. It's, uh, um, they, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, Angkor Thom. I don't know if anybody here has been there, but there's this column of drawings here, and this is another closer look. And above, the one that I'm pointing to is a picture of an antelope of some kind. And what's this one right here? How good does it show up up there? 1187D AD, a picture of a dinosaur carved on an ancient Cambodian that was lost in the, in the jungles. I just read in the last couple of weeks they just found another Cambodian temple. It'll be interesting to see what the drawings are on that one. This is News Rock in Utah. You can see that... Uh, the Native American Indians like to do a lot of drawings on rocks. 
there's a particular rock there that uh, has creationist uh, attention, and that person's pointing to it, and we get closer to it. Ah, a tail of a cedar. This is an evolutionist uh, page out of one of their textbooks talking about the fossils that they do have. The tinted areas are where the fossils are. And it's kind of funny, the wording of this family tree shows the likely evolution of dinosaurs. That means they don't know the likely evolution. And where the transitions all happen, there's no transition fossils. And uh, my bet is they'll never find them. They always, when they find the fossils, stay the same. They don't evolve from one to the other. So let's talk about the evolution of biological beings. One blood, one race is what the Bible teaches. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We all come from one man, Adam and Eve. We all descended from Adam, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ we all will be made alive. What Charles Darwin didn't know was DNA. He just looked at the superficial things, things that he could see. He didn't have any DNA uh, knowledge in his lifetime. What we know today is this is our information system. This is what turns us into who we are. It tells us what color eyes we're going to have, what color skin we're going to have, what, how big my ears are going to be or how big my head's going to be. That's information that's built into every DNA molecule that we have in our body. DNA is, a, is an alphabet. We have a 26-letter alphabet for the English language. The alphabet for human DNA is only four letters long. And the words in the DNA is only two letters long, and there's only two words in our DNA code. And you get over 3 billion base pairs out of this, or 40,000 genes in the human genome. Human proteins, there's 20 amino acids. They're three-letter words, and there's 64 condens and 100,000 proteins approximately. So this is the language of DNA. You almost could say the language of God. In mathematics and DNA, I believe, are languages of God as well as the languages that we speak. What do we know about DNA? The human body is made up of 46 chromosomes, 23 from each parent. Chromosome 23 determines our sex. In the males, it's an XY chromosome. In the females, it's an XX. So when a male and a female mate, you get an XX or an XY, and it determines whether the child or the offspring will be a male or a female. If you notice, you can only get a male from a male. The chromosome for the male does not exist in the chromosome of a female. So all the kings that were killing their queens over the year for not giving them a male offspring were wrong. They should have been killing themselves. They were responsible for not having a male offspring. <laughs> science gets it right. Eve came, from, I mean, the Bible gets the science right. Eve came from Adam. It couldn't have been the other way around the way we look at the chromosomes that are made up. Only 50% of the genes are, are known or 50% are unknown. They don't know the functions of those genes. Not one chromosome sequence is complete, despite what you read in the press. DNA in each cell seems to be the same. When you look at the crime movies and they collect DNA for evidence to go into court, they don't care where they get the DNA from. They don't care if it's from the skin, the hair, or where the blood. 
They don't care because they can't tell the difference. They don't know what makes a DNA molecule, a, a liver molecule, a heart molecule, a skin molecule. Uh, genes occupy only 2% of the DNA. The 98% of the DNA is considered junk DNA. Basically, they don't know what it does yet. There's a lot of unknown, and I think uh, God made it really tough for us to know. Uh, you'll see this in textbooks. This is 1952 where somebody tried to create life in a lab and tried to say it was spontaneous and it could have came out of some primordial soup. Well, you know, this experiment right from the beginning has intelligence, man creating the experiment, so it can't happen all by itself. He also left out oxygen, uh, which he thought wasn't in the early atmosphere, Earth atmosphere. And how did he know what was in the early Earth's atmosphere? Probably today we know he had the wrong starting elements. Uh, he also knew he had to collect things by a spark, and he had to use his trap to collect it. And he got left-handed and right-handed amino acids. He didn't get just right-handed. Otherwise, you don't get the coiling that we have in DNA. And I didn't mention that DNA in our, our molecule, the DNA molecule, uh, when you stretch that out, it's one, uh, one meter or three feet long. That's how much information is packed into every DNA molecule in our body. And we have one trillion DNA molecules in our body if you stretch out all that information. So there's a lot of variability built in those DNA molecules. So here's a real simple example. We know a lot about dog breeding. We have lots of different breeds of dogs. They all came from one dog kind. That's all they had to go on the ark. And you can breed the different kinds because of the genetic variability. We talk about there's no two snowflakes alike. The same thing with us. There's no two human beings alike. Identical twins aren't identical. They have different fingerprints. So if we take a male dog that has a genetic capability of having short hair and long hair and made it with a female dog that has a genetic capability of having short hair and long hair, you've got three possibilities for the offspring. You could have a short-haired dog, a long-haired dog, or another medium-haired dog that has a genetic capability of short hair and long hair. And then if you mate the short male dog with a short-haired female dog, you're only going to get short hair. They have lost the genetic information for long hair, and they will continue to reproduce short hair. Long-haired dogs, likewise. If I take that short-haired dog, though, and made it with a dog that has long hair, I can bring that genetic information back into the offsprings of those dogs. You ever think about a bulldog and all that extra skin hanging off its nose and drooling all over the place? Because they bred the nose shorter but they couldn't breathe the skin out. So the skin's still there. That, that bulldog originally had a long nose, and they bred the nose down. Bred the, the doc, dachshunds with short legs and kept reproducing shorter legs and shorter legs. Okay, looking at it from a human being perspective, Adam and Eve and their genetic, making it a little bit more complex, but the genetics is a complex thing. But looking at their DNA code and uh, all the combinations they could have for skin color, you know, tried to shade this from darker to lighter and saying these are 16 combinations of skin shade that could have come out with the genetic variability that exists in the genetic code. This is what we call natural selection, not evolution. So, you know, short-haired dogs probably didn't survive in the Ice Age areas of the, of the world, and long-haired dogs probably didn't survive in the Sahara Desert. And over time, over the thousands of years, we, we go and we explore the world and we find short-haired dogs in cold countries, I mean in warm countries, we find long hair animals in, in the colder climates of the world. Natural selection. Twins with different skin color. 
uh, one parent was darker skin, one parent was lighter skin, and they could have uh, many combinations of skin in their offsprings. These were twins. Uh, here's uh, a couple that both look like medium skin, and uh, here's their twins. They were both, both parents were biracial parents. So they had all the genetic makeup to have a lots of different colors of skin in their offspring. You have the dominant genes and the recessive genes, and it all depends on which ones come out. When did life begin? For you formed me in my inward parts. This is a famous, famous quote from the Bobby. You wove me in my mother's womb. Basically, life began at conception. That DNA molecule that starts after the X, you know, the, the 23 chromosomes from the male and the female come together in the embryo, that DNA molecule has all the information for that person. It's all there. And all it's doing is copying it and making more and more until we get a trillion and we get an effort. What happens, though, sometimes as a result of sin and death and disease being entered, we have copying mistakes when the DNA molecules are copied. The car was red. The red car had only one key. The key has only one eye, one tip. An example here, three-letter word proteins and the types of mutations that we see today. And mutations are pointed to by evolution and say, hey, that, this is evolution because we see these mutations. No, it's not. It's mutations. It's not new information. It's loss of information. So here, one word gets replaced. One letter is changed. Here, we have what's called inverse mutations, where one phrase is written backwards. Um, and deletion mutations, where one whole phrase is missing. Looking at the original again, frame shift mutations, where one letter is inserted, and you end up with one letter missing. Frame shift mutations, again, where one letter is deleted and you end up with two extra letters. So mutations are loss of information. And to get from one kind to another kind, you have to have new information. Where did that new information come from? It didn't. It came from creation. We've been the same ever since the beginning of time. The Bible says in Genesis 1, we read last week, kinds came from kinds, not from other kinds like evolutionists wants to teach. Mutations do not create new... They, they love to create fruit flies in the labs because they can create so many generations so quickly. And mutations are usually uh, deadly. These mutations don't live with the multiple eyes, multiple wings, no wings, extra legs, no legs, whatever way they mutate these fruit flies. It's, it, so mutations are usually die out because they don't last long. So the lie, the evolution, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As Steve taught us in Romans. Both cannot be true. Evolution teaches nobody times nothing equals everything. The world is evolving, opposite of what the first law, or second law of thermodynamics says. We're organizing into higher order of beings. We're evolving. Uniformitarianism, the key to the past is the present. Basically, they're saying time plus death, the survival of the fittest, equals man. We evolved into man from time and death. Creation, God times the power of his word equals everything. World is devolving, entropy. Catastrophism, the key to the present is the past. God's history of the universe is the key. And it's man plus sin that introduced death into the world. Nothing times chance times time equals everything. Is very, evolution is very degrading to humanity, basically saying we're no better than anything else in, this, in the world. 
Evolution is hostile to reason. It's irrational. Saying matter evolved by pure chance, which is nothing, and evolved out of nothing. And this is a quote from somebody that's won the Nobel Prize. Given enough time, that which is impossible becomes virtually certain. That which is impossible becomes virtually certain. Okay. Evolution is antithetical to God's revealed truth. It cannot explain human intellect. It cannot explain emotion. And it cannot explain the origin of life. Evolution is a lie. It's not scientific. It denies the three laws that we have. The law of biogenesis. It says life comes from life. Discovered by Louis Pasteur, the first law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics. Evolution has never been observed. Evolution is nothing more than a belief system or a religion. Science has nothing to say about the past. You cannot prove scientifically when you were born. The Bible does not contradict science. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, one flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another flesh of fish. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. Paul knew that every star was different in the universe. We know that today, but I don't know how he knew that then. Only by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did he know that. Stand on firm ground. That's what I'm trying to help us all here. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, fallen, fallible men. By his craftiness, his deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He's being patient. And we are the torchbearers of the gospel. And we have to bring that message to the world. Trust in the Lord. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. I'm getting a little choked up about that right now because I think of Saeed Abedini over in prison. What that poor guy's going through. He's trusting in, man, in God, not man. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how you believe and I've taught you earthly things. God told us the history of the world. He created it. Sin corrupted it. He judged the world with the flood. He will judge it again, as we read in Second Peter, and Steve read the scripture earlier this morning, with fire. He distributed the people around the world with multiple languages. Told us in the Old Testament that Christ was coming and Christ did come. The hundred prophecies in the Old Testament came true. God is true to his word. And he has over 200 prophecies that he will come again. He paid the price for our sins on the cross and he promises he will come again with the consummation of a new heavens and a new earth. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for giving us and revealing the history of the world so we can understand how things are the way they are. Help us stand firm in the truth of your word. Help us be loving and humble and be patient and lovingly explain why we believe what we believe and be true bearers of your light of the gospel as we share it with the unbelieving world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.